Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Nielsen Show. Uh, sorry about last week. I didn't get back around to getting to the podcast. I was planning on it. Just stuff came up. Didn't get to it. I apologize now. Um, we're going to talk about the bureaucracy. So everybody kind of understands what's going on with that. I will catch you up to what was going on with me last week and what I was up to. Not that you probably care, but I'm going to let you know anyways. And uh, some other good stuff. I'm coming up right now. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, this is kind of a makeup episode, so it might get a little long. Hopefully not. Just want to get more to the point than anything here. Um, so anyways, before I get into that, last weekend had a great camp out with the family and some good friends and their kids. Uh, really relaxing. Got to get the bow out, shoot the target. Oh, man, I you you don't realize some of the muscles you don't use on a lot of things you do in your life until you shoot a bow <laughs> and then you're like wow uh my shoulders are weak <laughs> uh that's coming up the elk hunt for me is coming up in just a few short weeks um i've really got a uh, my hitting the target where i want is not the problem it's just repetitive pulling my bow back and hopefully it only is going to take one shot anyways that's what we like to do as hunters one shot one kill and enjoy the spoils of wild game some of the leanest meat you can ever eat uh plus jerky and other great things uh my mouth's starting to water just thinking about it anyways uh good hunt coming up for me hopefully the camp out was great thanks to my friends that came out and hung out with me and well, or we hung out with them, I guess, whatever way you want to look at that. And, you know, just enjoying the wonderful mountain air here in Utah. And the weather was perfect. We had a good rainstorm the one middle of the day. It was, I love rainstorms. I don't know, especially when you're in the mountains. Because once they pass by and the sun comes back out, just all the smells that come out of the dirt uh, from the trees, the wood and different things like that. And just the fresh air. You can't beat it. So, anyways, football season here is all coming up as well. College football, NFL, also my kids' sports, tackle football. Uh, it's a good time. I'm, I've actually been able to help coach, and it's it's been fun. Just helping all the kids, not even necessarily my boy. I try and work with him more, more at home, and then just try and uh, get the other kids to, you know, repetitious plays so they can get them down what they need to do to be effective. And it's just a fun thing to watch the kids grow, especially throughout the season. And, you know, hopefully they'll take some good life lessons out of all of this when we're done and don't think we're a bunch of meanies, you know, trying to coach them. I know sometimes your own kids take it the wrong way. But anyways, it's it's good time. Football season coming up. Hunting season's coming up. School's about ready to start. Man, it's, it's a busy time of year. Ha, <laughs> ha, but anyways, let's get into the, the meat and potatoes of this uh, episode here. So I want to explain if you don't quite know what a bureaucracy is. So the definition, now 
take this as you want. <laughs> this is from Wikipedia. Uh, I could read you the Merriam-Webster one, but and it's probably going to be close. Because they like to change definitions all the time. <laughs> and we might get into a little bit of that as well. But the term bureaucracy refers to a body of non-elected governing officials as well as to an administrative policy-making group. Historically, a bureaucracy was a government administration managed by departments staffed with non-elected officials. So the problem with this is, is that it keeps getting bigger. Um, and that's why you hear a lot of conservative people saying we need a small government and it's mostly for, of elected officials. Because these people that are put into the bureaucracy part of government aren't elected. They're, you know, they're appointed by presidents and the different people, typically presidents, under their different uh, organizations. So we got a, an article here that kind of sum it up a little better. It's called The Bureaucracy, The Real Government. I say these people aren't in there every two years having to deal with an election. They're appointed there. And a lot of the times they stay in those positions. And that's where you get the, the term deep state is because, you know, they, they can't help themselves. out. I mean, it's just a human condition, I think, that after people get power and they've been in a position of power for any numbers of years, they they start to like it. You know, not everyone, but a lot of them, they start to like that power of telling other people what to do. Um, and it's it's not good from a governmenting, I don't even know if that's a word, but it's going to be right now, governmenting against the people. So, you know, the faces of government are your president, vice president, you know, the House and the Senate people, you know, they're the ones that are always out there in front of the TV saying stuff. But it's the people behind the scenes that we don't see that are typically pulling the strings a lot of the time. So this article goes on and it's from, uh, what is it, ushistory.org, American Government, the Bureaucracy, the Real Government, um, the Organization of the Bureaucracy. Even the experts can't agree on the total number of federal government agencies, commissions, and departments. Most estimates suggest there are probably more than 2,000 of these. They each have an area of specialization, some much broader than others, but their duties often overlap, making administration more difficult. That's why the founders always wanted to say a limited government. And, you know, most conservative people, it's like, we need a limited government. And some people talk a big game. Oh, yeah, we're going to downsize government. But it never happens. It always, always gets bigger. And the problem with that is the bigger the government gets, the more rights of the citizens seem to disappear. And it's not supposed to be that way. It was never designed that way. This whole country was based on the idea of self-governance. And I know, like I say... It's a lot easier to have somebody else do all the dirty work for you and you not have to get your hands dirty. I get that. But that is what causes the problem we're starting to see now where you've just got unaccountable government officials. And some of that is just us keeping electing these same people into Congress for 30 and 40 years. 
So part of it's it's our fault. I mean that. I mean I don't. I'm not even gonna say it's kind of our fault. It's our fault. Us the we the people. It's our fault. Um, let's see here. To complicate things even more, many agencies have counterparts at the state and local level. Its size, complexity, and overlapping responsibilities have the federal bureaucracy open to constant attempts to reorganize and streamline. So it basically means they're never getting anything accomplished for the most part. Congress has the power to create, organize, and disband all federal agencies. Most of them are under the control of the president although a few of them actually have direct contact with the White House. Uh, so, does anybody see a problem there? <laughs> these these bureaucracy things, you know, Department of State, Treasury Department, Department of Defense, all of these departments, uh, they are formed, and then somebody's kind of in the, the cabinet, you know, the president comes in, and he appoints somebody to head these departments, and they don't typically go in there and just fire everybody and start over. All those people underneath there are, have been there for decades, most of them. And that's what they start talking about, the deep state. Because some of those people are pulling strings, and nobody, even most people don't have any idea who these people are. It's too big, it's too bloated to know that. But that's really what the kind of the, the mess of this operation is. Um, let's see. Where was I now? I forgot. Uh, I'll probably re be rereading a little bit of this. Congress has the power to create, organize, and disband all federal agencies. Most of them are under the control of the president, although a few of them actually have direct contact with the White House. So, that, so that's the heads. So the bureaucracy has two masters, Congress and the president. The bureaucracy generally falls into four broad types, cabinet departments, government corporations, independent agencies, and regulatory commissions. The cabinet departments. The 15 cabinet departments are each headed by a secretary who sits on the president's cabinet. The exception is the Justice Department, which is headed by the Attorney General, who is also a member of the president's cabinet. Uh, so does anybody understand now what the problem is with corruption in the government? So if you're appointed to a high position of power, in the DOJ, uh, an attorney general, any of those things that are in the law enforcement arm of the government, if your boss is doing something illegal, nobody wants to investigate them anymore because that's their boss. And it just kind of leads to more corruption. It's like, well, boss is doing it, I can do it too. And even when now, when people get caught, nothing ever seems to happen to them. Because now we hear all these, you know, other conservative hosts like, oh, the walls are closing in on Hunter Biden. It's like, what kind of real investigation is really going on there against him? I mean, we've all seen all the different stuff because he's pretty you know, I mean, lazy about not trying to hide that he's a drug addict and sleeps around with all kinds of hookers and different things like that. I mean, that's a pretty well-known fact these days. So, back to the bureaucracy. <laughs> the secretaries are responsible for directing the department's policy and for overseeing its operation. So, everybody underneath these secretaries that are appointed to those positions by the president, typically, 
they're not going to investigate themselves. That is what the problem with this is. I mean, and like I say, there's a lot of good people that are in these positions that want to do the right things. But I think just the temptation of corruption is the biggest problem. Um, cabinet secretaries are usually torn between their responsibilities as presidential advisors and heads of their departments. Each has a special area of policy, although the responsibilities are still very broad. The organization of each is quite complex. But, you know, because that way if nobody can figure out what this, you know, department is supposed to be doing, then there's no real oversight. Uh, the organization of each is quite complex, but they have some things in common. All secretaries have a deputy or undersecretary, as well as a host of assistant secretaries who all direct major programs within, uh, within the department. Most departments are divided into bureaus, divisions, and sections. For example, the FBI lies within the domain of the Justice Department and the Secretary or, and the Secret Service is currently within the Treasury Department agency, but soon to be moved under the auspices of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I'm not sure how old this article is, so maybe that's already happened. Um, let's see. So it's got a little sidebar here that says the Cabinet Departments. Uh, that's the 15 of them. Department of State, Treasury Department. Department of Defense, Department of Justice, Department of the Interior, Department of Agriculture, Department of Commerce, Department of Labor, Department of Transportation, Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, Department of Energy, Department of Education, Department of Veterans Affairs, Department of Homeland Security. Um, not sure, quite sure why it takes 15 different departments to do... I mean, I get it. You kind of want to break it down sometimes so it's not just one agency covering the whole United States. So you can do these little sub. I get that. But each one of those subs is ginormous as well. That's part of the problem. Um, government corporations. Government corporations do not belong to any department. They stand on their own. Probably the best known government corporations are the United States Postal Service and Amtrak. They are different from other agencies in that they are businesses created by Congress and they charge fees for their services. Like any other business, government corporations have private competition, such as Federal Express, United Parcel Service, and sometimes state competition, such as the New Jersey Transit Authority. Uh, I Yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those things that, you know, most people know that government doesn't do anything very well in the first place. So, you know, I don't know why people have argued this before. Why do we have a, a Department of Education? Why do we have a Postal Service? Because they are continually going broke and need more money from the taxpayers to keep them going. Guess what happens? FedEx doesn't do its job. People quit using them. They go out of business. What happens if the Postal Service does, isn't doing their job? We give them more money. That's the difference. <laughs> so now when you do a public-private partnership, you know, like they're wanting to do with everything these days, especially with the green energy and all the uh, things they're trying to push, it makes it... If I know that government is going to give me money 
how efficient do you think I'm going to run my business? Probably not very efficient because I'm guaranteed money. So now all I got to do is lobby the right people to get that contract, baby. And oh, I'm in. In the money. I'm in the money. All right, moving on. Independent agencies closely resemble cabinet departments, but they are smaller and less complex. Generally, they have narrow areas of responsibility, then do cabinet departments. Most of these agencies are not free from presidential control and are independent only in the sense that they are not part of a department. Does <laughs> it get confusing yet? Congress creates them as a separate agency for many reasons, practical as well as symbolic. For example, when the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, was established, many members of Congress assumed that it would be part of the Department of Defense. However, it is an independent agency because the space program has many other purposes than the defense of the nation. Now we move into the regulatory agencies. These agencies regulate important parts of the economy, making rules for large industries and businesses that affect the interests of the public. Because regulatory commissions are watchdogs, I guess, I mean, if that's what you want to call them anymore, uh, that by their very nature need to operate independently. They are not part of a department, and the president does not directly control most of them. Each commission has from 5 to 11 members appointed by the president. Key words there, appointed by the president. But the president cannot remove them for the length of their terms in office. <sighs> yeah, I, I mean, like I say, it's, it, it's not making your head hurt. You're not, you're not thinking about it hard enough. <laughs> uh, examples of these commissions are the Securities and Exchange Commission, which regulates the stock market, brokers, and investment practices. Another well-known commission is the Federal Reserve Board that governs the nation's monetary policy. The Environmental Protection Agency serves as a guardian over the nation's environment, making and enforcing standards for the industri industrial and commercial sectors. Um, also, I, I don't know if you remember this, but there was, I think, southern, southern Utah. There was some cleanup the, the EPA was doing down there. Um, caused a dam to break with whatever work it was they were doing or ordering around to do. It flooded into the rivers and caused a major water catastrophe, essentially. Uh, it, nobody could drink any of the water down in southern Utah for, like, months because they had screwed up, let all this toxic mining sludge or whatever you want to call it into the rivers. And what was what was the consequences? I think it ended up being a, oops, sorry. <laughs> Moving on. With over 2,000 different agencies, the federal bureaucracy is almost certain to run into problems with organizational overlapping responsibilities and efficiency. Almost every recent president has come into office determined to refashion and trim the bureaucracy. However, none has been able to make more than minor adjustments. Well-established agencies have lives of their own and are difficult to change. Besides, the country has large, complex needs requiring special attention. A large bureaucracy is a part of the government's attempt to meet those needs. 
So you can kind of see how this becomes super complicated because it's just gotten so big. And uh, let me double check my time right here. All right, we're on 20 minutes. So still got a little bit of time here to keep going on. Who are the bureaucrats? The image of the faceless federal employee is completely false. The 4 million Americans who work for the federal government have many faces and do many jobs. For starters, over 1.4 million are in military service. Overall, they represent much more of a cross-section of the American population than do members of Congress or federal judges. About 43% are women and 28% represent minority groups. Surprising facts. Many other misconceptions exist about federal employees. Consider the following. Only about 10% of civilian employees work in the Washington, D.C. area. Postal workers and forest rangers live and work across the country. For example, bleh, example, California alone has more federal employees than does the District of Columbia. Uh, no big surprise here. About 30% of the civilian employees work for the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or some other defense agency. Even though bureaucrats work at a variety of jobs, most are white-collar workers like secretaries, clerks, lawyers, inspectors, and engineers. The number of federal employees per 100 people in the United States population has actually decreased from over 14 per 100 in the early 1970s to a little over 10 per 100 by the late 1990s. But all of these people, not to rip on them because a lot of them do want to go and do their job the best they can, but they're the ones that are doing that are also got to carry the other ones that for some reason, never get fired from their job for not doing their job. And it also depends on who you are, what you do, and who you butt kiss. <laughs> uh, what do bureaucrats do? Most people think that bureaucrats only follow orders. They carry out the decisions that the president or members of Congress make. Of course, anyone who works in the executive branch is there to implement decisions, but the reality of their work is more complicated. The power of the bureaucracy depends on how much discretionary authority it is granted. Congress passes laws, but it cannot follow through on all the little decisions that have to be made as the law is translated into action. Bureaucrats then may make policies and choose actions that are not spelled out in advance by laws. Now, this is the whole thing that people are like, oh, this is a, a wink, wink, nod, nod to the bureaucracy because they know essentially by what the these laws and stuff are that congress passes or executive order from the president that the rest of them kind of know what direction they need to start implementing these little other things down the line um congress delegates substantial authority to administrative agencies in several areas paying subsidies, government support money to farmers, veterans, scientists, schools, universities, and hospitals, transferring money to state and local governments for grants in aid such as highway building, city improvements, or educational programs, devising and enforcing regulations such as who owns television stations, what safety features automobiles have, and what kinds of scientific research will be specially encouraged. So... Part of the problem is with that is like you hear like NPR, National Public Radio, are subsidized by taxpayer money. Um, other things like PBS, 
public broadcasting services or whatever they are, is taxpayer-funded money. Um, so if you've got somebody somewhere up the line that's saying, hey, you know, we want you to start pushing climate change through Sesame Street or, you know, any, any of the whatever agendas they have going on, that, hey, you want this money? You better start towing the line and, you know, knowing what we want you to do and what we want you to say, what kind of objective we want you to push. That's just how the system works. Like, oh, Barack Obama's in here and he, you know, starting out the climate change thing. Well, guess what? You want to you want this government grant money for to keep your PBS or NPR on the radio? You're going to start talking a certain way. And if you actually even listen to any of those places, you'd understand what I'm saying. But it's uh, it's just how, like I say, the system is so big and complex. And that's just the money. The money really drives the the wink, wink, nod, nod things like, OK, yeah, we get what this administration wants us to say so we can keep our jobs and keep that money coming in. Um, going on, about 90% of all federal bureaucrats are hired under regulations of the civil service system. Most of them take a written examination administered by the Office of Personnel Management, and they meet selection criteria, such as training, education levels, or prior experience. Some of them take special tests and meet special criteria, such as post employees, FBI agents, CIA intelligence officers, foreign service officers, and doctors in the public health service. None of which I would ever want to be in. At least not right now, for sure. Nor would I probably even make it into any of them anyways. <laughs> the variety of people who work for the federal bureaucracy is greater than most people realize. They may do scientific research, clerk in welfare offices, decide burn policies for national forests, or do undercover intelligence work. They are all part of the process whereby the government fulfills the many expectations that Americans have for it today. And with that, since I'm coming up on my 30-minute mark, I'm going to take a quick break here before we keep talking about the bureaucracy, just so you have a better understanding of why things get done the way they get done. And we will be right back here at the Nielsen Show. Okay, let's get back into it here, shall we? So, the next page on here is, let me see here, come on, uh, reforming the bureaucracy. <laughs> I don't even think that is physically possible at this, this stage of the game. Um, since 1980, virtually every presidential election included a debate over the size of the federal government. Like I say, that's the, that's the problem. I mean, they all either just talk a big game about limiting the size of government or they just don't understand now how hard that is to do, which I would say is probably a little of both. Americans who believed the bureaucracy had become too large, too expensive, and too powerful were becoming more numerous, and as a result, many politicians began to demand reform. Bureaucracies move slowly. One hand doesn't always know what the other is doing. 
Oh, man. Imagine that. Federal employees have so much job security that there's little fear of being fired for incompetence. There are so many agencies organized in such confusing ways. And I will just tell you, that's kind of unfortunately how a lot of unions work. Uh, They have some good, but anymore, they're just not really, they're kind of bad. They, They protect a lot of the lazies and the people that just don't want to do their job or are getting in trouble all the time for stupid stuff. And companies can't fire them because they pay their dues. That's essentially, I mean, if I could be wrong on this, but that's how I see it. Like, you pay your dues, you're a good stooge, you, you know, you're fighting against the company, or, you know, I don't know, whatever the reasoning is. Most of the time, that just seems to be the way it is. It's, like, hard to fire them, and companies will just, rather than fight with the unions, put them in a different position where they can just coast. They get these cushy jobs that most of the time make no sense of why that job's even there. And they don't do anything, but they still get paid the same as everybody else is working their butts off to keep making a paycheck and keep making the company money. Unfortunately, when you get a, a system set up like that in the government, it it's not good because then me, you, and everybody else out here in the in the private sector have got to work harder to pay their salaries in our taxes. But anyways... Um, how can the ordinary, wow, how can the ordinary citizen feel connected to government when everything is so impersonal? Public criticism of bureaucratic inefficiency is commonplace. Uh, I'm guilty of that. I rail on it all the time. Um, Public criticism of bureaucratic inefficiency is commonplace. In response, many people, including most presidents, have tried to reform and reorganize the bureaucracy, the merit system, and the Hatch Act. The merit system tries to ensure that the best qualified people get government jobs, and that party politics is limited. In 1939, Congress passed the Hatch Act, which requires employees, once they are hired, to have as little to do with political parties as possible. Now, that's going to be a hard thing to keep out of there, especially if you're a voting citizen of the United States, um, to really be apolitical in your job. Uh, Another part of the problem. Um, uh, The Hatch Act forbids employees from engaging in many party activities. For example, they could not run for public office or raise funds for a party or candidate nor could they become officers in a political organization or a delegate to a party convention. In the early 1970s, some bureaucrats complained that their First Amendment rights were being violated. The issue made its way to the Supreme Court, where the justices ruled that the Hatch Act did not put unreasonable restrictions on employees' rights. However, in 1993, Congress softened the Hatch Act by making many forms of participation in politics permissible. Federal bureaucrats still cannot run as candidates in elections, but they may be active in party politics. As I would say, I mean, the easiest thing to revert back to is just look at what happened to President Trump with the federal agencies and agents of especially the FBI and different organizations. You know, these people got political with it. 
And part of the deep state was they're like, this guy cannot be present. We just got to make something up, essentially, is what this whole Russia thing turned out to be, to keep him from being president. Um, essentially trying to be a shadow government for the most part. So, requiring accountability. One criticism of our merit-based bureaucracy is that once a person is employed, there are no requirements that he or she be held accountable for their work. Since they no longer lose their jobs when a new president takes office, some criticize that they become complacent and inflexible. Some suggestions for making civil servants more accountable for their work include the following. Limiting appointments to 6 to 12 years. After the appointment expires, the bureaucrat would then have to go through re-examination and the performance would be reviewed for possible rehire, making, making it easier to fire a bureaucrat. Civil service rules that are meant to protect workers from partisan politics have reformers want to remove those rules. Oh, it, make it made it difficult to fire anyone for poor performance. Reformers want to remove those rules. So making it even harder to fire worthless people. Rotating professionals between agencies and from outside. Reformers believe that this practice would bring new blood to agencies and encourage workers to get a broader view of government service. Cutting red tape. One common complaint about bureaucracy is that red tape, the maze of government rules, regulations, and paperwork, makes government so overwhelming to citizens that many people try to avoid any contact. Filling out forms, standing in line, and being put on hold on the telephone all have resulted in many people being discouraged from ever applying for benefits they rightfully deserve. In response, presidents of the 20th century offered no fewer than 11 major reorganizations of the federal bureaucracy. The latest was the National Performance Review conducted by Vice President Al Gore in 1993. The NPR report contained many horror stories about useless red tape for both citizens and government officials themselves. The NPR called for less centralized management, more employee initiative, fewer rules, and more emphasis on customer satisfaction. As of the year 2000, few of the recommendations have been followed. <laughs> uh, um, try and start a business these days. And find out all of the sh crap you have to about slip there. <laughs> all of the crap it takes just to get a business license and the insurances and all the other crap. And then, all depending on what kind of business you're going into, all the state licensing, the federal uh, EPA requirements. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. And most people don't understand that side of it. Like the liberal sense of it is, is oh, you know, without the workers, there is no, there is no company. You know, the company doesn't make any money without the workers, which is true. But a company can still make money without the employees. It's just owner-operated. I know firsthand how that works. It's like, but if I can't find somebody that I feel is worthwhile to hire and pay for that job, I just don't hire them. And guess what? Now that worker doesn't have a job. So without the businesses, and you know, most people have never tried to start a business and have no idea what I'm talking about. 
But when you do and have to go through, you know, the paying the taxes, you know, the state, federal, uh, all of the federal, whatever, you know, Social Security, uh, state workers comp. I mean, there's pages of people you got to keep happy. And most of that comes in the form of, I need a little chunk. This place needs a little piece. All the paperwork is... Uh, it just hurts your head when you have to actually break down. You know, it's like, anyways, if you if you don't understand it, go start a business. That you'll find out real quick what I'm talking about. Uh, one of the reasons it is so hard for to reform the bureaucracy is that it has two masters: the president and Congress. Especially during periods of divided government, one branch can be suspicious that the other is trying to gain control. As a result, one branch or the other resists reform. Finding the practical solutions that have bipartisan support is a difficult process, largely because the system of checks and balances is not particularly efficient. Nevertheless, bureaucratic reform is often attempted by the President and Congress. Meanwhile, the red tape remains rather sticky. And that was one thing President Trump started trying to do was get rid of regulations. Un, I mean, because there's, there's a healthy amount of regulation, and then there's everything beyond that as unhealthy regulation. And a lot of the time, the regulation is just regulation piled on top of already existing regulation to make whatever it was regulating that much harder to get around. And the people that, you know, big corporations are the best at getting around the red tape because they've got a lot of money. They got money to pay lobbyists to go in there and, you know, get Congress on their side. More than like, I'm probably just going to have to say this quietly, but probably paying bribes to some of these people. <laughs> That's a hush-hush word around there. Oh, we don't take, we don't take bribes. Yeah, but it's pretty crazy how many of you people just keep going in the revolving door that is Washington, D.C. Once you're out of office, you're hired by these firms in different places to go lobby the same people you worked with. Uh, another part of the problem of the bureaucracy. Next page, please. The judicial branch. Now, the thing with that, we've seen that all pretty recently, you know, uh, Gorsuch and a couple of the other more conservative judges that got conservative and constitutional judges that have been put on there, what they've had to go through, through the, the selection process and just all the crap that was made up and mud slung at them. I mean, the worst probably that I can, at least in my lifetime that I've ever seen any kind of judge confirmation go through. Anyways, I'm not going to dig too far into that. You, you guys probably all seen how that all went down. Uh, it's one of those things. It's like the left wants to say. They're not this or they're not that. They're, you know, it's like just because it's not your sides, we have to change the rules. It's like all I want from either side of these judges. I don't want them to be conservative or liberal or whatever i want them to be constitutional and that's how i want them to see the court and the decisions they make like justice roberts he's i don't really know what he is i think he's just for himself and his legacy what his legacy will 
show when he's done there. Because some of the things that, like uh, Obamacare, well, how did that get passed? Oh, because he decided uh, making you buy health insurance, it was a tax. And that's how it, it did the workaround. That was the loophole. And how's how's your health care now? Uh, anyways, the judicial branch. See you in court. You can't do that. I know my rights. I'm going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. These cliche sentences reflect a core American belief. Citizens of the United States can seek redress through the judicial system. But how do courts protect citizen rights? How does a case even get to the Supreme Court? How are the basic rights preserved? Where do citizens go when freedoms, rights, or equality is threatened? Does justice prevail? Throughout history, the American people have gone to the court seeking justice. The court system, then, is a cornerstone of democracy in the United States. Justice is blind. I mean, is it really? Well, Congress passes laws, and the president and the executive branch make recommendations and set policy. According to American Ideals, judges often make impartial and wise decisions that elected officials find difficult to make. Members of Congress, state governors, and the president must always worry about elections and popular opinion. As a result, they may lose sight of the need to preserve American values, and they sometimes set hasty or unjust policies. Under the guidance of constitutional principles, the courts serve as watchdogs for the other branches of government without the justice system. Democracy might easily veer off course. And then it says, is justice blind? But in reality, does the American justice system uphold these ideals? There are plenty of stories about innocent people held in prison and even prisoners executed for crimes they did not commit. And that is true. Very true story. Judicial critics abound. Some protest that the wealthy or the well-connected receive preferential treatment in courts. I will agree with that as well. Other critics of the judicial the other critics of the judicial system cite statistics they believe to be evidence of racial and social discrimination. For example, a disproportionate number of prisoners are young African American and male. Legal defense lawyers for the poor are sometimes criticized for being incompetent or apathetic. Or apathetic. <laughs> I can't read. Cases in both federal and state courts are often backed up for years, making a mockery of the right to a speedy public trial, as guaranteed by Amendment Six uh, of the Bill by Amendment Six of the Bill of Rights. Congress and the President are often at loggerheads over appointments of federal judges because the Republicans don't like a Democratic president's nominees and vice versa. Judgeships stay vacant for months, sometimes years. Um, and that's another thing that uh, a lot of activists, I would say, from the left side, when President Trump was in, uh, you know, it was president, he was appointing judges to the lower courts that didn't have to be necessarily vetted, like the Supreme Court. Like, they don't have to go through all the congressional hearing stuff and be accepted as a Supreme Court justice. The lower courts, the president, if there's openings, can appoint judges there. And he was did that to a lot of lower courts uh, vacancies. So, you know, like I say, the, the bureaucracy gets so big, I don't think even a lot of these 
people higher up even understand all a portion of what's going on underneath them. Um, judge for yourself. Yet despite all these criticisms, courts remain powerful protectors of freedoms. Freedom of speech has been protected, whether the speaker has been a, a critic of unjust government policy or a burner of the American flag. Segregation of public facilities ended partly because brave people took their cases to court. Freedom of religion interpretations have banned involuntary school prayer, preserving the separation of church and state while stirring up critics that the Judeo-Christian heritage on which the nation was founded is slowly being eroded. Although the wheels of justice often grind slowly, judges... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, man, that was a good stretch. My back has been tight. <laughs> oh, I got a stretch. Uh, where was I now? Uh, no, 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 no. It's found being slowly eroded. Although the wheels of justice often grind slowly, judges' decisions are usually the final word in interpreting basic constitutional principles. Almost from its beginning, the American judicial system has played a major role in defining and preserving freedom, equality, and justice. Don't believe it? Read on and judge for yourself. Next page. The creation of the federal courts. An act of the legislature repugnant to the Constitution is void. It is emphatically the province of the Judicial Department to say what the law is. John Marshall, Marbury v. Madison, 1803. The Constitution painstakingly defines the structure and functions of the legislative uh, branch of the government. It clearly, although less thoroughly, addresses the responsibilities and powers of the president. But it treats the ju judicial branch almost as an afterthought. Article 3 specifically creates only one court, the Supreme Court, allows judges to serve for life and to receive compensation, broadly outlines original and appellate jurisdiction and outlines the trial procedures for and limitations of congressional power against those accused of treason. That's all. Marshall marshals the court. The framers of the Constitution were clearly more interested in their experiment with legislative government than in the creation of a judicial system. Had it not been for John Marshall, the third chief justice of the Supreme Court, the judicial branch might well have developed into a weak and effective check on the legislature and the presidency. But Marshall changed everything by interpreting a power implied by Article 3, judicial review, or the power of the courts to overturn a law was the vehicle he used to create the most powerful judicial branch in the history of the world. Um, then it goes in through the Article 3 of the Constitution. Like I say, if you don't have a pocket constitution, find some place to get one because most people have no clue what your rights are or what duties the government can or cannot do under the constitution. Uh, Marbury versus Madison, 1803. The power of judicial review may be traced to the famous 1803 court case of Marbury versus Madison. The election of 1800 gave that the presidency to an opposing political party for the first time, fearing that the newly elected Thomas Jefferson, a Democratic Republican, uh, would undo his policies. Federalist President John Adams sought to pack the courts 
Now, you've heard that plenty of times lately, right? Sought to pack the courts with Federalist judges. He worked feverishly on the judicial appointments until the very end of his presidency. When he left office, several of the orders were left on the Secretary of State's desk waiting to be delivered. The new Secretary of State, James Madison, saw what Adams was up to and refused to carry out the commissions. William Marbury, a Federalist whose commission was not delivered, sued Madison and demanded the Supreme Court force Madison to act. Marbury's demand was based on the writ of mandamus, a power given to the court by the Judiciary Act of 1789 to command actions by officials of the executive branch. Chief Justice Marshall faced a huge dilemma. What if he commanded Madison to deliver the commissions and the Secretary of State ignored his command? What could Marshall do to enforce the decision? The court had no army, nor any other means to back up the command. If Marshall did nothing, the quarrel could spill over to Congress and tear the new country apart before it even got off the ground. The writ stuff. A writ is a written court order requiring a party to perform or cease to perform a given act. Marshall's decision was to declare the writ of mandamus unconstitutionally claiming that Congress had passed a law repugnant to the Constitution. He declared that because Article 3 did not grant the judicial branch the power of the writ of mandamus, and so the Supreme Court was unable to order Madison to act. Of course, Jefferson and Madison were happy with the decision, and the crisis passed with only a disgruntled perspective prospective justice marbury to protest um let's see here i'm not sure what this one is maybe this is a uh presbytus or something the constitution is either a superior paramount law unchangeable to ordinary means or it is on a level with ordinary legislative acts and like other acts it is alterable when the legislature shall please to alter it. Certainly all those who have framed written constitution contemplated them as forming the fundamental and paramount law of the nation, and consequently the theory of every such government must be that an act of the legislature repugnant to the constitution is void. I would say there's probably a lot of laws on the books that are repugnant to the constitution and probably void. But like I say, if if we the people don't even know what our rights are, who's how are you going to fight back and say, no, sorry, that is an unconstitutional law. Let's take it to court. Because you know, most normal people don't want to have to do that. But at least know your laws. If you get pulled over by a policeman and they want to search your car, they technically, if you tell them, no, I, you need a warrant, they need a warrant. If they you know, search your car anyways, arrest you and search your car unlawfully, there's a really good chance if you know your stuff or got a good lawyer that you're going to get off of whatever charges they tried to give to you. I mean, depending on where you're at, like I say, there are places that are corrupt that, you know, everybody just plays the game. Um, let's see. The Supreme Court gets the final word. Let's see where we're at here. Okay, I got just enough time to finish reading this part. No one seemed to understand the grand implications of what Marshall had done. He had created the power of judicial review. 
This established the precedent that only the federal courts could interpret the Constitution. This power has given federal judges the final word in settling virtually every major issue that that has challenged the government in American history. Today, the judicial branch not only provides strong checks and balances to the executive and legislative branches, it possesses a tremendous amount of policymaking power in its own right. This power rests more on the precedent, a principle that later justices followed, of judicial review set by Marshall in 1803 than on the provisions of the Constitution. And with that, we're coming close to our break again, so let's take a break, shall we? Uh, I mean, you guys can do that anytime. You just hit pause. <laughs> but anyways, uh, we'll be right back. All right, so I've skipped forward just a little bit here because there's a lot of pages in here. So I I, I recommend going to ushistory.org and just reading through this stuff because I, I went through to civil liberties and civil rights. And I know it's kind of getting away from the bureaucracy thing, but I think I've pretty well covered that. Um, so just getting into more information, that's all. Uh, rights and responsibilities... Of citizens. As much as the founders talked and wrote about liberty, they didn't have much to say about equality. That's another word we hear a lot of these days, isn't it? Thomas Jefferson's famous phrase in the Declaration of Independence proclaimed that all men are created equal. By today's standards, that statement is problematic because it says nothing about women. Uh, the word equality is used nowhere in the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights. The goals of the early United States were much more centered on liberty, but over the years, equal rights have come to be more and more important. Civil rights in early national history. Civil rights such as voting and owning property in early America were mostly restricted to white men. Most African Americans were brought to America as slaves who, under the Constitution, were only counted as three-fifths of a person. After the Civil War, slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment, and voting rights were granted to African Americans in the 15th Amendment. The most important change of the post-Civil War era was the 14th Amendment's famous clause, No state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The search for equal rights was far from over, with the passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868, state and local Jim Crow laws were enacted all over the South to segregate black and white Americans. The constitutionality, and see, that's the thing you, you hear these Jim Crow laws, you know, asking for identity is a Jim Crow law. Um, it's not trying to separate black and white Americans. It's just to prove you are who you are, no matter what color your skin is. Uh, that you're a legal citizen to vote. That's how the system is set up. So hopefully there's not cheating or at least as much cheating. Now, and just get a little bit off the topic, but on the topic, the, uh, I don't, I think it was PragerU was out asking kind of these white liberal college kids. So just so you have context on, you know, the kind of answers they're going to give. Uh, ask them. If it was racist to ask a colored person for ID to, in order to vote. And almost 
I would say, you know, well, and I know they're cherry picking the ones they put on there because they're trying to make point. But I would guess that if you went actually to a lot of these liberal colleges, all these kids parrot the same thing. Yes, it's racist. And it's what they've been taught. I mean, I, I can't really fully blame it on them because the people they are looking up to, their peers, their professors, are all teaching them this stuff. Because like Yuri Bezanov said, it takes a generation of these communist uh, people to infiltrate the education system and then teach the next generation of activists, essentially. The communist agenda. I mean, if you haven't watched his clip, it's Yuri Bezmanov. Uh, he defected in the 1980s, I think, like that, and come and basically said this is the game plan of the, you know, communist regimes. It's like it's a playbook. It's kind of how they infiltrate other governments and either get them to collapse or whatever they whatever will benefit their communism. Um, let's see here. Where was I at here? But anyways, oh yeah, back to the college kids. And then they go and ask, you know, some black kids that are, you know, just out on the street somewhere. Hey, is it racist for me to ask you for ID to vote? And they're like, no, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And then just any of them just asked, you know, if it was okay to ask you for ID. Like, yeah, everybody's got an ID. Why would I not, you know, why would I not have an ID? And like I say, I know they're cherry picking at least the people they want there, but the majority of the people that were white are the ones that are saying it's racist to ask a colored person, whether it's Hispanic, African-American, whatever, for ID to vote. And I mean, anybody with a logical thinking brain would say that's the most ridiculous thing ever. It's like, I don't care what your color, skin color is. I'm not basing it off of that. I'm basing it off, are you a legal citizen to vote and prove it to me that that's who you say you are? It just helps cut down on cheating from either political party. I don't care if it's the Republicans or anybody on the conservative side. If they're cheating, that's breaking the law and they should pay the penalty for it. No one should be above the laws. And I'm pretty sure somewhere in there it says that Congress shall not enact any laws that they're not willing to uh, abide by themselves. Or something similar to that. Um, let's see, where was I? Um, the search for equal rights was far from over with the passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868. State and local Jim Crow laws were enacted all over the South to segregate black and white Americans constitutionality of these laws was questioned in 1896 with the famous Plessy versus Ferguson case. Homer Plessy challenged a Louisiana state law that required the races to ride in equal but separate railroad cars. He claimed that the law violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court fatefully ruled that segregation was not unconstitutional as long as the facilities were equal. The decision effectively prevented the application of the 14th Amendment for more 
than a half a century. Uh, let's see what does it say here. The modern civil rights movement. The movement for equal rights gained its momentum in 1954 with the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka. I'm guessing that's Topeka, Kansas. Uh, the case overturned Plessy's separate but equal doctrine and declared that separate but equal public facilities were unconstitutional. The decision, the decision alone was not enough to begin the civil rights movement. The case was argued by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, an interest group whose cause was validated by the court's decision. The focus on the early movement was on African Americans, with many citizens and organizations joining in. Martin Luther King's charismatic leadership helped to propel the movement to the forefront of the nation's agenda. Nonviolent protests, demonstrations, sit-ins, and boycotts sparked presidents to act. And finally, Congress passed two significant laws, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Together, they virtually ended de jure segregation, separation by law. But much de facto segregation, separation by fact, has remained. The civil rights movement, oh, whoops, civil rights for women's the next headline part of it. The civil rights movement reawakened another major effort for equal rights, civil rights for women. Women had won the right to vote in 1920 after a struggle that effectively had begun in 1848 with a historic organizational meeting in Seneca Falls, New York. The movement lost momentum after its main goal was reached, but during the 1960s, new leaders emerged who demanded women's liberation. New organizations, such as the National Organization for Women, focused on eliminating gender discrimination in the workforce and school. They demanded equal legal rights, such as owning property and easier access to divorce for women. They fought for economic equality in the form of equal pay for equal work and broader admission into male-dominated professions. About, although the movement failed in its push to add the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution, it brought about many legal and social changes that supported more equal rights for women. Equal rights for all Americans. Many groups in American society were encouraged by the successes of the movements for African Americans and women, and much has happened in recent years to ensure equal rights for all. Major movements for Latinos, the elderly, the disabled, and homosexuals have heightened American awareness of discrimination against many other minorities. The 14th Amendment guaranteed equal protection of the law more than a century and a half ago. The fact that it took so many years for its effects to be felt is testimony to the complexity of the decision-making process in a democracy. It took all three branches, active interest groups, and concerned individual citizens to bring the country closer to the ideal of equal rights for all. And like I say, there's a lot of other pages in here. Um, Ghost starts going through your First Amendment rights, freedom of religion, you know, basically what that one is, uh, freedom of assembly and petition. It, it looks like it just starts going into more of the, uh, I don't know, your constitutional rights. Crime and due process, citizenship rights, uh, policy making, political interactions, foreign policy which is another disaster in our bureaucracy, the defense policy. Um, like I say, I could, I could rail on these things, but I've probably already done it enough that you get the point. <laughs> so with that, like I say, ushistory.org, if you want to read through any of that, uh, 
feel free to do so. Like I said, this is just, I'm all about educating people because I just feel like that is the, what the root cause of most of our problems we see in this nation right now is just people don't want to be educated about stuff. They want the easy way out, like watching the news, everything they say is truth and factual when anymore anybody that's thinking for themselves know that that's not true. And with, I mean, we, we're in the age of the internet. It can find anything you're looking for. And sometimes just a bunch of crap too. So you do have to kind of watch which sites you're going to on whether or not you're just getting propaganda material from right wing or left wing propaganda sites. Uh, that'll just, you know, confirm your bias. I try to look through that stuff if I can. I'll help it. So some of my stuff on this podcast is just for pure entertainment. And, uh, you know, for a good laugh or whatever, because that's just a good laugh. It's a good thing to do. <laughs> so I had a, a epic times here. I follow those guys. They seem to be the most truthful kind of uh, news organization out there. But there was an interesting article here that says China cuts its military communications and climate ties with the U.S. You think there will be any protests over that? I doubt it. It goes on to say, China's ruling communist regime announced Friday that it would cancel or suspend dialogue on several issues with the United States, ranging from military communications to climate change initiatives. A statement from the Chinese Communist Party's foreign ministry said that the regime would cancel all direct communications between military theater leaders, working meetings between defense departments and maritime security dialogues with the United States. Additionally, the CCP would suspend all cooperation with the United States related to illegal immigration, repatriation, criminal justice assistance, climate talks, transnational crime, and anti-drug programs. The announcement is part of a suit of of retaliatory measures by China against the United States and its partners following U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan earlier in the week. Now, I don't know what, well, I, I, I do know that they're not thinking, but like, how dumb are these Democrats to announce everything they're planning on doing to the world? There are some certain circumstances that need a level of security and secrecy. There are some things. Like, um, I don't know, hey, um, China, guess what? Uh, this is the Speaker of the House. I am flying to Taiwan to, you know, shore up uh, my husband's latest stock transactions, you know, with the uh, semiconductors and chips and things like that, you know, that he's invested a lot of money. Oh, wait, I did, did I say that out loud? Oh, I must have been drinking too much again. <laughs> I don't know, but I'm just making some of that up. But that's how stupid these people are. Barack Obama did the same thing. I'm drawing a hard line. This date here is when we're going. It's like, okay, just tell your enemies what you're doing. Hey, uh, we're going to be sending drones out. You know, you guys better run and hide somewhere else than where we're going to strike. Uh, you know, so maybe we will or maybe we won't hit you. That's how dumb these people are. I don't. I don't know if there's even any kind of logical sense in what they 
decide to spit out of their mouth in front of a camera. You know, it's no no different than what Joe Biden has just done with Afghanistan. Hey, this is this one we're pulling out of Afghanistan, Taliban. Uh, we're going to really start retracting, you know, and then this is our hard date. We're out of there. So uh, be nice, please. You uh, you guys told us, remember you pinky promised you wouldn't you wouldn't do anything. <sighs> it's exhausting. Politics is exhausting. It exhausts me. Because there is no common sense in most of these people's heads. It's just like it's turned into like, how can I get into public office to make the cheddar? Got to make that cheddar. Uh, what else does this one say here? Yeah, so... She announced she's going to Taiwan. Everybody knows China doesn't recognize Taiwan as its own country. It China feels that Taiwan is its country. But that's what it did with Hong Kong and those the inner cities that were kind of separate from China. Essentially, you know, they decided, hey, you know what? We're taking over. It's under our the CCP's rule. You're in our country. This is how it's going to be. Crack down on those cities, and those people learned real quick. What loss of, I mean, for the most part, they had some freedoms there. They had pretty good freedom. They was able to, you know, go around and do Western type things, Western nation type things, uh, free commerce and stuff like that. They dealt with the rest of the world. And now we're just kind of stuck there because all these big corporations have offshored all their manufacturing to these countries. And now we're starting to feel the ramifications of that. Uh, you know, and that's what I, I know I get it. The government is definitely making it harder on your wallet with gas prices, food prices, you know, the things that we need to survive as people in a modern society, uh, unless we want to go back to start digging caves and, you know, back to fireplaces and not fireplaces, but just a wood fire instead of, you know, Hey, I got natural gas. I can just turn the heat up at two degrees if it's cold outside. I can turn the AC down a couple degrees because it's hot outside. That is a modern world, but we don't think in modern technology in an effective way to make life easier for people. And I think like I've said before, maybe that's what it's got to take for people to start waking up because I think there's just a ton of stuff that every day we take for granted because it's just always been there. So maybe once it's gone for enough people and that uh, pain of reality hits in, then maybe it'll you know change a lot of people's minds and we can get this stuff figured out where it's good for everybody, not just the special people, the elites, and you know, everybody else that thinks that they deserve certain things over everybody else. Um, let's see, what else does it say here? Moreover, the canceling of communication between military commanders in the Indo-Pacific is likely to be seen as a major escalation by the international community as such contact is often a key tool in helping militaries avoid miscommunication or harmful accidents. The CCP statement follows a barrage of explosive rhetoric and hostile actions for Be from Beijing this week. On Thursday, the CCP launched two ballistic missiles into the waters around Taiwan, some of which passed over the island and into the exclusive economic zone of Japan. 
Uh, that almost really close to an act of war, I would guess. The regime has also seemingly launched a sustained series of cyber attacks on Taiwanese infrastructure and has implemented import bans on more than 2,000 items from Taiwan. The Chinese military's encirclement of Taiwan has also formed sort a sort of blockade, forcing international air and sea traffic to back up as it attempts to wrap around the most dangerous areas. International forums, including the G7 and ASEAN, A-S-E-A-N, I don't know what that's called, have called on the CCP to end its provocations and pursue a peaceful solution to ongoing tensions. The White House, meanwhile, summoned the Chinese ambassador for a reprimand over the unprecedented escalations. Uh, see, here's the thing. It's like, I don't even understand why in the first place Nancy Pelosi is going over there. Unless somehow it's to benefit her and her husband and their families and whoever else is in this uh, insider trading in Washington. I, I just don't know what the whole reasoning was behind all this. Um, let's see. Da, 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 da. The U.S. leadership said that it would not give in to China's erratic and dangerous behavior and that, in spite of CCP threats to regional stability, it would pursue de-escalatory measures, including postponing one of its own missile tests. As China engages in destabilizing military exercises around Taiwan, the United States is demonstrating instead the behavior of a responsible nuclear power by reducing the risks of miscalculation and misperception, said White House National Secretary Council Communications Coordinator John Kirby during an August 4th press conference. This is how we're going to defend America's national security interests and our values. The CCP maintains a so-called One China Principle, which states that Taiwan is a breakaway province that must be reunited with the mainland. The regime has not ruled out the use of force to achieve this goal. Taiwan has been self-governing since 1949 and has never been controlled by the CCP. However, and Taiwan maintains a democratic government and thriving market economy. So this is kind of one of those things that we start seeing with these break-off countries from the old Russia, uh, Ukraine now in the spotlight, that it kind of has, you know, Putin has kind of that same mentality, I think. And he wants that country back as part of the, you know, Russia's the biggest country in the world anyways, landmass-wise. And most of it's fairly uninhabitable as far as I know. Uh, China feels like it doesn't want to give up any land anyways. But at the same time, I mean, if this place is 1949, what was that after World War II? It's been ruling itself, but now all of a sudden China's like, no, you're part of China and it's just how it's going to be. Well, what what stuff comes out of Taiwan? A lot of stuff, especially that U.S., the U.S. and Europe and a lot of other countries around the world rely on their manufacturing of stuff like chips, computer chips for vehicles, uh, computers, all kinds of different stuff like that, and much more. Not just that. That's just kind of the, some of the things I can think of off the top of my head. But that's, I think, China's main goal is to get them under the CCP's control to regulate where and who is going to get these goods. Because if you can shut down the auto industry by, you know, taking over Taiwan and just saying, 
coming up with some stupid reason why you got to shut the country down, then it puts manufacturing of all these businesses that much farther behind, that much farther in the hole, and just people can't get new vehicles. So with that, uh, we will come back with some other stuff. I want to go through some more Instagram stuff because there's always good stuff on there and clips to listen to that just amuse me more than anything. But, you know, hopefully you'll find them amusing as well. We will be back in just a moment. All right, here is the final segment. Uh, We're going to go over some Instagram posts. But before I do that, there was one more article in here that caught my eye here from the Epic Times. And I don't know if I'm the only one that's noticed this. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not. There are four hire signs everywhere. I'm constantly getting people even asking me, do you know anybody that will come and fill out an application to come to work? So their article says, Anomaly in employment statistics grows. How many Americans actually work? Over the past four months, an unusual phenomenon has emerged. When surveyed by the government, employers reported they have been rapidly adding people to their payrolls. But when government surveyors asked Americans, fewer said they actually work. (laughs) How does that work? The discrepancy between those two survey results has grown to a magnitude virtually unseen for more than half a century. On August 5th, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported 528,000 jobs created in July, a blockbuster figure leading prognostications in the dust. However, the labor force participation rate, which includes people working and looking for work, declined from 62.2% in June to 62.1% in July. Moreover, since April, payrolls grew grew by nearly 1.7 million jobs, while at the same time, the total employment level dropped by about 170,000. I don't math so well, but that's something's not adding up here. (laughs) The reason for the paradoxical results stems from the sources of the data. Two different surveys that measure somewhat different things. The employment level data comes from the Census Bureau's household survey, which asks people whether they are currently working, and BLS uses those results to produce the monthly unemployment rate. The survey has a margin of error of about 400,000 workers. Wow, that's a pretty big number, (laughs) if that's the margin of error. Uh, The payroll data comes from the BLS establishment survey that asks companies how many people they employ. Differing from the household survey, it excludes farm workers, those who are self-employed but not incorporated, household workers, and unpaid family workers. Its results have a margin of error of about 100,000 employees. Results of the surveys usually grow and decline in tandem, and any divergences tend to smoothen out within months. Yet the current four-month divergence over 1.8 million is particularly rare. The numbers went haywire in 2020 because of difficulties collecting the data and because each survey classified differently some workers affected by the COVID-19 pandemic lockdowns. If that period is excluded, the last time the four-month divergence grew so big was in 1968. 
there doesn't seem to be a straightforward explanation in the data itself. The gap appears to be too large to be written off on account of the margin of error. Changes in worker groups excluded by the establishment survey Farm workers, those who are self-employed but not incorporated, household workers, and unpaid family workers don't appear to have been large enough to explain the gap either. When reached for comment, the BLS Division of Work Labor Force Statistics explained that its monthly, monthly releases concentrate on the more reliable measure of employment change from the payroll survey in the monthly news release because it has a smaller margin of error and also because many data users, especially those not familiar with the conceptual and methodological differences between the two data sources have found that two different and sometimes widely divergent measures of employment change for a given month can be quite confusing. We do not have any additional explanation or speculation on the divergent in recent months. The BLS said in an email to the Epic Times, noting that looking at their 12-month net change, the two series are much closer aligned. To what degree the figures reflect the actual situation on the ground matters because they are an important indicator for investors and policymakers. The Federal Reserve has pointed to robust payroll numbers and low unemployment as indicators that the economy is not currently in a recession, though the real gross domestic product has declined for two quarters in a row based on preliminary data, which has historically been considered the technical rule of thumb for a recession. But, you know, that doesn't matter anymore. We'll just call up Webster's Dictionary and have them change the definition. (laughs) Oh, I can't say that. Dang. Uh, Some economics uh, economists have pointed out that the apparent labor shortage isn't a measure of extraordinary economic growth, but due to people leaving the jobs market. In June, there were an estimated 10.7 million job openings and fewer than 6 million people classified as unemployed. But the unemployment figure excludes people who weren't looking for a job in the prior four weeks. If the pre-COVID-19 pandemic economy at least managed to keep up with population growth, adding about 74,000 jobs per month on average, the country should have had about 2.9 million more people employed in July. So now that that's off my chest, <laughs> let's get to the Instagram, shall we? Uh, this is a good one from Dennis Prager. The first issue is the opposition to, oh my God, one man, one rich man, the richest in the world, apparently, taking over a company. Did anybody object to Jeff Bezos? One of the, is he the second richest man in the world? Taking over the Washington Post? No opposition there, right? because he ensured that the Washington Post continued to be left-wing. So that's fine. But if you're not left-wing and Elon Musk is not right-wing, except for the, for, to the extent, and this is really important, the right values liberty more than the left does. That is true. Dennis Prager, y'all. Uh, he's pretty, he's got some pretty good stuff. Prager you in general. Um, this is kind of an old one, but I don't know if you've heard it. It's the processing plants catching fire. It's a truly bizarre story and one that is getting very little coverage across the country. Food processing plants have been catching fire and have been destroyed over the past year. 
In fact, these fires began showing up regularly in the news after a fire closed at Tyson Foods meat processing plant in Kansas. The location was a primary beef processing location for the company and the U.S. supply chain, providing about 6% of all U.S. beef. Shortly after that fire, there was talk that the meat supply in the U.S. could be affected. These are just a couple of examples. In all, there have been 16 of these cases. In February, Sharer's food processing plant in Hermiston, Oregon, burned down, leaving two employees injured. On April 13th, Taylor Farms food processing plant in Salinas, California, burned and prompted evacuations. On April 19th, the headquarters of the Azure Standard Food Processing Plant in Defer, Oregon, also burned. What seems to be happening right now is beyond coincidence, a series of accidents and fires and damages at food processing plants in a moment where we're being warned that there's going to be a shortage of food supplies. Now that is top-grade conspiracy theory stuff there. But, on the other hand, is it? And like I say, I've, I've, I did an episode about how there is a element of these things that happen all the time. Uh, now, whether or not it's a coincidence that it just happened to like he said all these are happening right after they said there's going to be a food shortage and all this stuff you know uh i guess you can go down your own rabbit holes on that one <laughs> uh, i just thought i'd throw that out there <laughs> uh what is this one good morning good morning um my son played hockey his name is sean hartman since he was eight years old and he took a year off for covid and he got extremely bored sitting in his bedroom. He decided to go back to hockey this year. And to do that, he had to have a vaccination to play hockey. He got his first shot of Pfizer on August 25th, went to the hospital on August 29th with a bad reaction. He got sent home with only a prescription for Advil. He had a rash all over his neck and face and brown circles around his eyes. They sent him home, and on the morning of September 27th, his mother found him dead on the floor beside his bed. And all he wanted to do was play hockey. So I'm just wondering really how safe this is. And why no deaths are being reported. That is a very good question. I mean, because we, I mean, as much as we want to say COVID's over, it's not over. They are still going whacked out on this. I mean, they've coming out and already saying, oh, there's going to be another wave this fall. Let's keep pushing those vaccines. And like I've said before, if you feel it is in your best medical interests to get the vaccine, then by all means, get the vaccine but to force people to take this uh under the false pretense that oh it'll protect you from ever getting it uh, it'll protect you from spreading it to other people which we now know is complete bullcrap but moving on let's see what is this one there's ben swan again this was on the i think the uvalde shooter Let's start with a question. When it comes to the debate over mass shootings in America, why does the discussion always go toward tougher gun laws? And yet we're not talking about the role of antidepressants and other psychiatric medication. The truth, the connection between mass shooters and these meds is stunning. Let's give it a reality check you won't get anywhere else. 
and the link to psychiatric medication is deeply concerning. In 1989, 47-year-old Joseph T. Westbecker shot 20 workers in a Louisville, Kentucky factory, killing nine people, just a month after he began taking Prozac. The drug maker Eli Lilly and Company later settled a lawsuit brought by survivors. 1998, 15-year-old Oregon school shooter Kip Kinkle, he opened fire in his school cafeteria. He was also on Prozac. 1999, Columbine killer Eric Harris was on Lovix, another antidepressant. Now, an important fact about Lovix, according to... Oh, sorry. Author David Kuplerman from his book, How Evil Works, Lovex manufacturer Solvay Pharmaceuticals concedes that during short-term controlled clinical trials, 4% of children and youth taking Lovex, that's 1 in 25, developed mania, a dangerous and violence-prone mental derangement characterized by extreme excitement and delusion. Let's go back to that list of shooters again. In 2005, 16-year-old Jeff Weiss, living on Minnesota's Red Lake Indian Reservation, shot and killed nine people and wounded five others before killing himself. Weiss had been taking Prozac. 2007, the Virginia Tech shooter had shot and killed 32 people. Officials found prescription medicine related to the treatment of psychological problems among his personal belongings. That according to the New York Times. 2012, Colorado theater shooter James Holmes, he was reportedly prescribed the antidepressant Zoloft. 2013, Navy Yard shooter Aaron Alexis sprayed bullets at office workers and in a cafeteria, killing 13 people, including himself. Alexis had been prescribed Trazodone by his veteran affairs doctor. 2014, Elliot Roger went on a shooting spree after stabbing three men to death. He had been prescribed psychotropic drugs. That according to the LA Times. 2017, Las Vegas shooter Stephen Paddock, according to the Las Vegas Review Journal, Paddock had been prescribed diazepam. Diazepam is known by its brand name, Valium. That's how most of us would know it. It's a sedative, hypnotic drug in the class of drugs which studies have shown can trigger aggressive behavior. Paddock received his prescription in June of 2017. Just months later, in October, he carried out the deadliest shooting in modern American history. Now, there are dozens of other examples here, but to be clear, we're not saying that absolutely prescription drugs are to blame for mass shootings. The underlying issues of mental health, though, that these shooters all seem to have are alarming. And knowing that the majority of them were prescribed antidepressants, you have to consider this. Some of the most alarming side effects of Prozac include suicidal thoughts, self-mutilation, and manic behavior. Zoloft can cause hallucinations, agitation, and memory problems. For Valium, it's also hallucinations, depression, and thoughts of suicide. These are dangers that drug makers themselves are required to disclose. Now, the use of antidepressants in America has skyrocketed. As of 2013, 12% of Americans were filling prescriptions for them. And while millions of people do not suffer violent episodes, the drug makers warn that some people may and do. Now, you've heard some of those warnings in the commercials that those pharmaceutical companies pay to run on mainstream media networks. According to the New York Times, 771, 368 of those ads were shown in 2016. It's an increase of almost 65% over 2012. Pharmaceutical companies are estimated to spend $6.4 billion on direct-to-consumer advertising in 2016. That according to USA. Brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch, sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer. CNN Tonight. Brought to you by Pfizer. Early start. Brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett out front. 
brought to you by Pfizer. This week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. This letter report brought to you by Pfizer. Today's countdown to the royal wedding is brought to you by Pfizer. And now a CBS Sports update brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the press. Data download. Brought to you by Pfizer. This portion of CBS This Morning sponsored by Pfizer. On how to find the hidden sugars in the American family diet. Sponsored by Pfizer. That correlation does not always equal causation. We know that. We also do not know that the reason for these mass shootings is because of any one or any number of drugs. Nor do we know how much of a role, if any, that these drugs may have played. But the question is, why is that? Why are politicians and mainstream media pushing so many discussions about guns and virtually no discussion of whether or not antidepressants or psychiatric drugs may have played a role? Because the numbers, they are compelling. And they beg a question that deserves an answer. Let's start with a question. When it comes to the debate over mass shootings in America, why does the discussion always go toward tougher gun laws? And yet we're not talking about the role. To... Let's oh, start with a question. Started over. <laughs> I wonder why it sounded familiar. Uh, ben Swan got a lot of good stuff out there. He seems to be like a an investigative journalist uh, asking questions. Like I said, he admits certain things, you know, causation or whatever that phrase it was he said. I can't remember now. But there's a lot of things we're not asking questions about or certain the right people aren't asking questions. And why is that? I don't, you know, I can't read minds. I don't know. But that he's always got some pretty interesting stuff. If you find him, Ben Swan, uh, like I say, lots of good stuff. Let's see. What do we got next here? Um. Oh, here's a, here's a good one here. This will go with a, a newer one right here. On Earth is sex. When you use sex as a weapon to a child, you will destroy a child's life. You will MK Ultra control that child. That child will be a walking zombie. When he or she is 18, 19, and will not fight for individual liberty, truth, justice for all, First Amendment, Second Amendment, Constitution, will not defend this nation. Why, Yaku? Because when a, when a human being is victimized sexually, they're like a turtle that pulls his head in a shell. They go into survival mode. They know this. They know very well because, again, Alfred Kinsley showed them this. They know. Hitler talked about this. They know. If they can sexually compromise America's children, they will not. They will become subordinates. They will not fight. Hmm, that's a very interesting uh, observation. Well, maybe that's why these losers like, uh, let's see, Gavin Newsom would do this. this is the headline from Breitbart. Gov Governor Gavin Newsom signs bill reducing penalties for sodomy with minors. These people are psychotic and they don't tell me they don't know what they're doing. And if they don't know what they're doing, they should not be in the positions of power that they are in. Oh, here's the other one. your livelihood 
doing it to dehumanize you, to upset you, to put you in a point of submissiveness so they can turn you into a slave. I do not use that word lightly. This is nothing other than an exercise purely attributed towards creating slaves. And unless people stand up and do something. And unless people stand up and do something, it will keep getting worse. Uh, I can't remember who this guy is, but he's actually had some pretty good stuff he's been you know, talking about lately. So I don't know. I mean, he probably I'm just preaching to the choir, probably the most part of this, but we got to get active in pushing back because being submissive and just, oh, it won't affect me or oh, it'll never happen here. That kind of mentality is exactly what causes it to happen here. And I don't know about you, whoever's listening out there how you feel about your freedoms and your liberty, but the less we speak up, the more they will take. And, you know, in a lot of their minds, they probably think they're doing the right thing, even though they're just psychotic. <laughs> uh, let's see. What's another one I got here? Um, let's see. I think I already did that one. Some of these I'll have to do for another one because they don't really tie into what we're... Well, let me... This one here. This guy might cuss, so earmuffs, I guess, for the if there's any little ones listening. Give you three seconds. Two, one. A dating period. You know, after like four or five months of dating. Then at what point does it get... Do you have to pay... Did the woman have to pay when they go out? Yeah. <laughs> I think we should just deal with the who should pay thing to begin with. Who, when you're on a date, who should pay? <laughs> no, I'd say the man. I'm dating. We're dating. You. But here's the gentleman here. Yeah, okay. He's supposed to pay. Yeah. That's you're what so, I, but you're supposed to have sex with him whenever he says. No. Reality, <laughs> you guys can, you can, you can moan at it all you want. But the moment you say to a guy, you have to fucking pay for my time, you're saying this relationship isn't equal. This relationship isn't equal. My time is worth more than yours, so you should pay for it. Ouch. But he's got a point. I mean, ladies, got to think about that one. If you're dating and it's in your head that it's always the man's job to pay i mean and i think for old school it kind of it's it's been that way you know the man would take the lady out quarter or whatever you know and pay for dinners and nice things and that's not saying that men can't do that anymore but he's got a point that it's just become an expectation of a woman that if uh they're gonna go out on a date that it's always the man's job to pay for it and for me, I still feel that way personally, but I can see his point. But I'll just leave it at that. That's <laughs> because uh, that's just how I like to roll. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, let's see what this guy says. This could be a good one. The new world order. Population 
Reduction. I believe we are enslaved in a society where we will not be free to think or feel or do anything other than consume. Slaves for work to buy things beyond our means. Living in fear of terrorism. I believe this is to blindside us, trick us into a situation where they, the powers that be, will wipe us out. Kill most of us. Kill all of us here. They are going to reduce the population. There will be a global population reduction until there are only 500 million people left. How do you know that? It's a question of space and the resources the space has. And using those resources to survive and not exploiting them. Almost 7 billion humans use too many resources. This leads to a very uncertain future for us all. Right, climate change. Climate change occurs naturally. That's why we have the Ice Age. So now you're telling me that climate change is fake? As you know it. Why do you recycle? Why do you recycle? I'm doing my bit. So you're trying to save the planet? Yeah. How precious of you to think that you could save the planet. If she needed saving, especially from us, she'd just wipe us out. Hypothetically, if we want to conserve 80% of the planet's resources, then we should get rid of or cull that 20% of the population who are consuming them. Yeah? Hypothetically, I guess that would be a solution. Yeah, the final solution. We use so much of the planet's resources, there's just no balance. Soon we would have depleted the resources so much that life can't be sustained. And then everything would die. How would they reduce the population? We're not stupid. Hitler said, the bigger the lie, the more the people will believe it. I think it will be done hit the start. The armed forces are going to kill us. They'll follow orders. It's what they've been trained to do. They're being taught to be racists. The army are already killing people in other countries. People in power are using fear to fuel the racism. How long before they use this racism to make soldiers turn on their own? Innocent people. Living in a police state. So had it begun, controlling and monitoring the movement of individuals within the society, putting chips in passports, ID cards, CCTV. They're using this orchestrated ruse to convince the public to accept Big Brother-type controls. And then they will intentionally reduce the mass of the world's population. Mass genocide on a scale never seen before. There are a mass of ways they could introduce population slaughter. More staged events, orchestrated and maneuvered conflicts, and the use of bioengineered diseases. Vaccines. They could come in vaccines. Women are being encouraged to get sterilized. What if they're using cervical cancer jabs? Not this generation, but the next. Prevention and cure for cancer. Or having babies. Madness. You're right. They never wait two generations. It will be done in a barbaric fashion using draconian methods, and this global holocaust will probably come out from under the flag of the UN. You can almost imagine us being frog marched away from our homes in a martial law kind of way. No one 
and bats an eyelid. Almost 95% of the population. 13 out of every 14 people killed, destroyed, and murdered. In order to stabilize world population, they need or want to dispose of six and a half billion people. That one is from Unbeaten Pathway. They got some somewhat crazy things here and there, but some not so crazy. Um, Let's see. We will just end it on this one. I don't believe that there's somebody sitting in the sky with his feet propped up on top of the world called God. I believe that God is the presence of good that is within each individual person, whether he knows it or not. And this is where my ministry comes in. It is my ministry to make the individual aware that the presence of God, the presence of all good, the potential of good is within each individual and not in the sky somewhere. I usually say when you find the heaven that is within you, then you will find yourself in heaven. Not until then, because heaven and hell are both states of mind. When a person is in a very doubtful and negative state of mind, he's always going to catch hell. He's going to experience hell. But when the individual finds the heaven, the harmony, the God, the good, the love that is resident in his own being, then he begins to experience heaven. In other words, you change your conditions by changing your self-image. If you see yourself as a person who is in a veil of tears and uh, under conditions and circumstances, that's the way you will be until you change your mind, until you change your self-image. Is it your view that traditional fundamentalist religion makes it more difficult to change one's mind? Yes, it does. Because here again, you see, in that type of religion, we are taught that either God or the devil are responsible for what happens to us. But uh, in what I call the science of living or the science of self-awareness, I teach that the individual is responsible for his condition. And not only that, the individual, by using his own mind positively, can change his condition and modify his conditions. And so the responsibility for our lives does not lie with some deity in the sky, but it lies with the God power within each one of us. And that will conclude this week's episode of The Nielsen Show. Hope you'll join me again next time, and I'll try and stay more on top of it on getting these weekly episodes out. Like I say, I do have a life, too, and uh, you know, I just kind of enjoy doing this for you know informational purposes. So until then, see you next time.